So Paul clearly through Galatians has been stressing the importance of how we are made right with God to the exclusion of all human attempts to be right with God. And here uh, he is saying even a little, I mean, quite literally a little snip of circumcision. If you accept that, you've undone the whole thing. If there's any ounce of you that thinks that you bring anything to the table, you've not understood the gospel, you've fallen away from grace. And he's been addressing this all throughout Galatians, right? And now he finally gets to the crux of what will demonstrate whether we've actually understood the gospel or not. And the way he shows this is the fruit that will be in our lives. So it's not enough to simply say, to verbally, theoretically say you understand the gospel. Paul is very clearly saying there will actually be fruit that will demonstrate whether you have understood the gospel. There will be fruit in your lives that will demonstrate whether you've rightly understood the gospel, which will be fruits of the spirit, or there will be fruits, bad fruits of the flesh, which will demonstrate that you have not understood the gospel. And here he, he speaks in general terms over the bad and good fruit. So it's the same, they're general because he would use those same themes throughout his letter to the Corinthians in Ephesians. They're very similar themes. He speaks in general terms of the bad and the good fruit. But what he does give is some specific details on the causes of the fruit. So the causes of the bad fruit. And here in Galatians 5, we have three causes of the bad fruit that we will look at. And then I want to just briefly talk about what then produces the good fruit and then finish with five marks of good fruit. So you have three causes of the bad fruit and then basically the five marks of good fruit. So firstly, the bad fruit. So here, what does Paul say are the, the causes of this bad fruit in the community? What is he actually warning the Galatians against? The first one is a misunderstanding of justification, which we see in verse four. Paul says in verse four, you who would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace. Remember that grace is a gift, right? The word is literally gift. We receive grace because we don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. If, it, if we deserved it in any way, then it would be an entitlement. I gave the example weeks ago of every your fortnightly pay. You never um, are thrilled getting your fortnightly pay because you're entitled to that. It's just a normal thing. Whereas if you receive that amount on top of it freely, that would be a gift. It would promote some excitement within you. Grace is a gift where there's no entitlement whatsoever. So those, therefore, who seek to be justified by the law, they are seeking God's favor through their own merit, which means that they cannot receive the gift of grace because grace is undeserved. You cancel it out if there's anything that you think you bring to the table. Now, how does this result in bad fruit? Because bad fruit, well, rather because good fruit comes by grace. So how does misunderstanding the gospel result in bad fruit? Because the gospel is grace. If you do not accept grace, then you do not have fruit coming in your life because good fruit is a product of grace. 
It's a product of grace in your life. So the same grace which saves us is the same grace which empowers us to then live a godly life. I've mentioned it many times before and in passages like Titus 2, the the grace of God has appeared to us, training us to renounce ungodliness, to live holy and pure lives. That's the grace. So if you are not being trained in your life to live holy and to abstain from worldly passions, then you don't have grace in you. If there's not some trajectory toward that, I'm not talking about perfection, but I'm talking about some trajectory toward that because that is the result of grace in your life. That's what grace does. So these people who have fallen from grace have no empowering grace within them. So that's why Paul is detailing the works of the flesh. Because if you're bound by the flesh, then the transformative work of the gospel has not taken root in your life. So all throughout Galatians, the spirit and grace are always connected together and the flesh and the law are always connected together. So if Paul here is saying that you who seek to be justified by coming under the law, you're bound by the flesh. Whereas if you are justified by grace, you're in the spirit. You're free from the flesh. You actually have the transformative work of the gospel taking root in your life, which means that good fruit will come. But for the Galatians, it was their misunderstanding of justification that then kept them bound to the flesh that resulted in this bad fruit. That's the first misunderstanding. The second is a little leaven. This is from verse 9. So this is where Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And the concept of leaven was introduced in the Old Testament, right, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was connected with the Passover, where after God had freed Israel from Egypt, he told them to celebrate this festival and they were to eat bread that was unleavened. So there was supposed to be no leaven in the bread because leaven was a sign of sin and slavery to sin in the community. And they were free from that. So they were to eat unleavened bread. Now, the analogy of leaven then continued all through the Old Testament, right through to the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene and he starts talking about leaven and he uses it for the leaven of the Pharisees. He says these Pharisees are dangerous. They are hypocrites. So he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware of their hypocrisy. Paul uses it to the Corinthian church to describe sexual immorality and sin. So the concept of leaven is used in various ways, but it's always talking about something very dangerous that is pervasive in the community. So for the Corinthian church, it was their sexual immorality that was pervading the community and creating people to stumble into sexual immorality. And here, Paul uses it to describe false doctrine in the church. He uses it to say, hey, a little leaven, a little false teaching, a little misunderstanding of justification pervades the whole lump. It's going to affect the whole church. And this is not only the case for false teaching. Often in communities, it is the leaven of strong personalities and bad character that end up affecting the community. And we are such a small community that it is very easy to influence a community of like 10 people, you're going to need a few personalities to influence that. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little apathy leavens the whole lump. It affects the church. A little laziness 
leavens the whole lump. If you have particular people in the community, and this is this really, really grieves me a lot. My, my burden for all of you is to, to see you presented mature in Christ, to be growing, to actually be having a, a wonderful joy in the Lord. And there are sometimes, speaking in general terms, um, that I've experienced in Christian communities elsewhere where there are some who downplay the need for uh, holiness in the life of the community. And I've seen it affect other people. It actually leavens the whole lump. People who downplay spiritual disciplines, people who downplay the need to put to death the deeds of the flesh, who actually downplay the need for growing in holiness and go against the Bible... They influence other people. I've seen other people who then get dragged down with that. It's not a good thing. And like Paul says, it's so serious. In verse 10, he says, the one who does that, they will bear the penalty. The word is literally be condemned. They will be condemned. So we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for those who are causing leaven to be in the community, they will be condemned. It's quite a serious thing. The third issue here, the third cause of bad fruit is a false freedom. This is in verses 1 and 13. Paul says, you are called to freedom, but he warns them not to use their freedom to then submit to slavery in the flesh. Now, our culture understands freedom as like no inhibitions, like no one telling you what to do. So, so if you're free, no one can tell you what to do. No one can oppress you in any way. That's how we understand freedom. And when this creeps into the church, people misunderstand the grace of God and always think that obedience to God's word is somehow restricting of their freedom. But that's, of course, completely foreign to the Bible, totally foreign. Obedience to God's word is actually where we are most free. I've given this example before, like speed limits on our roads keep us free. They keep us free from lunatics on the road who have the potential to kill us. Like, or if you would be driving down a road and you, let's say you're going down the Clyde Mountain to the coast and you see those signs because you're coming across a hairpin corner and it says like 25, 35 kilometers an hour and you say, how dare you? Oppressive, restrictive sign. I'm free. I'm going to take this at 100 kilometers an hour because I want to get down to the bay quickly. And you'd be an absolute moron. You'd crash to your death. The signs there are restricting you for your freedom and for everyone else's freedom. That's how we function. That's how God's word actually functions. When we stay within the parameters, we are most free. We stay free from sin. Now, what do you use your freedom for? Paul says here in verses 13 to 14, you use your freedom to serve others. You use your freedom to actually enslave yourself to others for their good and for the glory of God. So a question for all of us now, are you free enough to be a slave? Are you free enough? Do you feel free enough to be a slave? Because there is a freedom on offer in Christ that allows us to be enslaved to others, to the glory of God with absolute satisfaction. 
So you don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh, as Paul says here. Because the work of the gospel sets you free from the flesh. So you're free from the need to preserve yourself. This is the fruit of the gospel. You're actually free from that debilitating need to preserve yourself by defending yourself or by having your identity and all of these other things. Because when you come to grips with the gospel, you realize that that life that you're trying to preserve is actually garbage in comparison to the life that is found in Christ. And that's the freedom of the gospel. It's as if Christ sets us so free from ourselves that we can enslave ourselves to others and we do not become enslaved in any way. It doesn't threaten our identity. It doesn't threaten who we are. It doesn't restrict us because the freedom we have in Christ sets us way higher than this world. That's why Paul could say, I make myself a slave of other people. To those under the law, I come as one under the law. I'm, I'm a slave to them for the glory of God because he has set me so free that I don't actually ever feel like I'm a slave. There is a wonderful freedom in Christ. So these are the three main causes of the bad fruit in the Galatian church. A misunderstanding of justification, leaven in the community, and a false freedom. What produces then the good fruit? That's the bad fruit. What produces the good fruit? Quite simply, it's a right understanding of the gospel. It's coming back to the core of the gospel. The understanding that God's gracious gift of salvation extended to us in Jesus Christ comes to us purely by his mercy because of nothing we have done. His love is poured out upon us while we hated him. And he brings us in by the blood of Christ, covering our sins. Like we read in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he, has he removed our transgressions from us. That promotes humility in us because we see our sin before a holy God, but then we see his overwhelming love in spite of that to be poured out upon us. And that sets us on a path to spend the rest of our lives, like I mentioned last week, growing in the knowledge of God, swimming in the ocean of his knowledge, all the days of our lives. Now, what does this produce? This is where I want to look at the five marks of the good fruit, which comes from a right understanding of the gospel. So we know the gospel. We've seen the causes of the bad fruit. Now, what are the marks? What will be the evidence for us? that we have rightly understood the gospel. The first one is an eager longing for the hope of righteousness. I'm getting this from verse five, an eager longing for the hope of righteousness. So Paul says in verse five, we genuine followers of Jesus, in contrast to those who are under the law, who have a misunderstanding of justification, we through the spirit and by faith, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We eagerly wait for it. Now, what is this talking about? What is the hope of righteousness? Is this talking about the hope of finally being righteous? The hope of actually finally being, you know, fully righteous? Or is it talking about the hope of what our righteousness will bring? Given that we are declared righteous, namely our complete reconciliation with God. The new heavens and new earth, complete restoration. And I would say both. It's both referring to the 
hope of finally being righteous and also the hope of what our righteousness will bring in the future. Because we know we are declared righteous, like we've gone over this in Galatians, the, the wonderful gospel of justification by faith is that we are declared righteous. Right now, you are righteous, you are blameless before God the Father. You're perfect in His eyes. Regardless of anything that you have done in your past, by faith in Christ, you are declared righteous. God says, my son in whom I am well pleased. But we also know the reality of this sinful world. We know we spend enough time with ourselves and with other people that there is sin present in our lives and in others. We know that we make mistakes. We know that our passions wage war against our soul. There is a wrestle going on. So the taste that we have of righteousness now, which is this declaration that we are righteous, we've tasted that, we have the first fruits That gives us an eager longing for the full meal of righteousness. It gives us an eager longing for actually the full meal of righteousness where no sin will be present anymore. No mistakes, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death. Sin is done away with when Christ returns again and God consummates his kingdom. Everything is made new. Sin is done away with. We are righteous never to sin again in the presence of God. And we hope for that. But this also must refer to the hope of what our righteousness brings, which is an eternity to know and worship God in his immediate presence, to actually be with God. Imagine that. Just like think of that for a moment. Think of what it would be like to be in the presence of God, to actually see him. You know, the promise John gives in his letter that, uh, what we have has not yet appeared to us, but soon we will see him and we will become as he is. Soon we will see the face of Christ. We will see the face of our Savior and we will become as he is. We will be in his presence. It's mind-blowing. It almost makes me faint. It's just incredible to think about that. And that is the hope that we have So the hope of our righteousness is both that we will be righteous apart from the presence of sin, but also that we will be in the immediate presence of our Savior, which is what the the hope of our righteousness brings, communion with our God. So the true mark of the Christian is that we, like Paul says, we groan inwardly, eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan, waiting for this. We want it because we want righteousness. We we don't want to sin anymore. We don't want to make mistakes because it, it disrespects God to go against his law and it brings shame upon us. We don't want that anymore. But we also know that we can't bring that about in and of ourselves. We are totally dependent upon the Spirit to do that in our lives, which is this wonderful trajectory that we have been brought on, which will eventually result in our communion with the Lord uninhibited. In the presence of God, complete restoration, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's the first mark. The second mark is a genuine faith displayed in loving service. This is verse 6. Paul follows on 
from waiting for the hope of righteousness by saying in verse 6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So he's saying that there is no cultural superiority or inferiority. That's no, that's no longer present. In Christ, there's no way that a Jew who is circumcised could say, I am better than a Gentile, than an uncircumcised Christian. If you're following Jesus, there's no more of this cultural superiority or inferiority. inferiority. There's no better or worse Christian. There's only those who are in Christ. So all of the external ways in which society distinguishes, and boy, we like to distinguish and compare each other, they mean nothing anymore in Christ. The only thing that counts is the internal transformation, which shows itself in genuine trust in Christ and loving service. That's what counts. The mark of the Christian is that there is a genuine faith in Christ that is displayed in a loving service. If there is no love that comes from our trust in Christ, then there is no disciple because a disciple is a learner. We learn what it means to love as Jesus did. We learn what it means to follow Christ. If there is no love, there is no disciple of Christ. There is simply an imposter. Now, what does this love prompted by faith look like? It must surely follow the pattern of the self-giving love of God that we see in Jesus. The love that we are, that should be the fruit of our lives, should follow the same pattern as the self-giving love of God that we see in Jesus, that we see where he gave his only son. So does our love display a selflessness? Does our love, is our love willing to actually take on a burden ourselves for the sake of the other. One area of this is in being uh, hospitable. So I'd, I've spoken about hospitality before and true hospitality is not simply hanging out with friends. That's not hospitality. We use, culture uses hospitality in that way. That's not hospitality to just hang out with your friends. That's what any average person can do. That's what any sinner can do. Jesus is very clear about this um, when he speaks and says, if you love only those who love you, that's not flashy. I'm not impressed by that. That's not evidence of my love. So hospitality is not simply inviting the people that you want to be around. That's not hospitality. The, the root word for hospitality in the Bible is actually a combination of two words. The first word is stranger or foreigner. It's the word that's used for like the exile, the stranger, the foreigner, the weirdo from a distant nation. And then the second word is love. Hospitality is to love the foreigner, love the stranger. Hospitality is to bring the stranger in and make them feel loved. That's what hospitality is. It's actually bringing people who you would not usually hang out with and welcoming them in. And that's true hospitality. That's Christian hospitality. This is what loving service is. And this is the mark of the Christian who has been saturated by the gospel. Because what do we see in the gospel? We see a love given to enemies. We see a love given to those who, who hated God. And so our loving service follows that same pattern. 
The third mark is an obedience to the truth. This is verse 7. Paul questions the Galatians and says, Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? Who has done it? What wicked person has hindered you from obeying the truth? The fruit of the gospel in our lives is that we seek to obey the truth because the gospel is the truth. It's the truth. The the fruit of the gospel in our lives is that we actually walk in obedience to it. And our obedience to the truth must come through sacrifice and opposition. So Paul gives the example here in verse 11, how we must obey the truth in spite of opposition. And he gives it from his own life. And he says, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So Paul is clearly saying the cross carries an offense. It's offensive to some people. The gospel is offensive. Even Jesus himself, when he said, um, you must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood effectively to actually be my follower. And people turned away and Jesus said, oh, does this offend you? Does this offend you, what I'm saying to you? And he didn't plead for them. He let them go. There is an offense of the gospel to those who are hardened. And Paul is saying here, the cross carries an offense. It tells people that they are sinful and condemned to death. The cross, the message of the cross tells them that. You'd have to be crazy to enjoy that message that is telling you, you are a sinner. You are deserving of the same punishment that was given to Jesus, which is an excruciating punishment. There is an offense of the gospel. So Paul is saying, if I preach circumcision, if I keep preaching circumcision, this kind of fits nicely into the way of thinking that there is some human effort that we can bring to it. Like if we just bring, if we just circumcise ourselves, then that will make us right with God. This fits very nicely into the way of thinking that thinks that we can do things to be right with God. Whereas the message of the cross says you can do nothing to be right with God. It is purely an act of his mercy. And so Paul says that the fact that I am persecuted is evidence that I am obeying the truth of the message. Because this follows the same pattern of the true prophets. If you read through the Old Testament, the genuine prophets were those who were, they, they did not have big crowds following them apart from people who wanted to kill them. They were stoned. They were sawn in half. They were persecuted for the message of the truth. It follows the same pattern of our Savior Jesus who spoke the truth and was reviled and who told us, hey, be prepared. They've hated me. They're going to hate you too. True gospel fruit will be the obedience to the truth of Christ in spite of all of the opposition that comes. Now, again, don't get it twisted. If you are just an abrasive personality or you're rude, that's not, you're not being, you're not being persecuted because of the offense of the, the gospel, it's just because you need to grow in humility and be a nicer person. God will be the judge of that. But for most of us, we can follow the message of the cross by living in obedience to it, by proclaiming it in spite of the opposition that we might have. So if your faith has never cost you anything, is it real faith? Is it genuine faith?
Genuine faith will follow the obedience of the truth. The fourth mark, our second to last mark, selfless harmony within the community. This is from verses 13 to 15. Paul tells the Galatians that they, they have to use their freedom to serve one another. That's what we do. We, we don't use our freedom to serve the flesh. We use our freedom to serve others for their good, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, how does a right understanding of the gospel promote harmony within the community? How does this right understanding of the gospel of justification promote harmony within the community? It's because the gospel reminds us that we do not deserve any of the love we have in Christ. That's what the gospel reminds us of. So much of our bitterness and lack of harmony comes out of an entitled spirit. That's where it comes out of. I'm entitled to feel angry. I'm entitled to my own time and my own pleasure. I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to follow my career, regardless of what it means for other people. We have this really dangerous sense of entitlement in our culture. And just look at the bad fruit in verses 19 to 21. Look at some of, look at the way these, look at how these fruits are described. Enmity, jealousy, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy. These all come out of an entitled spirit. They're a prideful spirit. That's where these bad fruits come from. Whereas on the flip side, patience, gentleness, forgiveness, humility, that can only come out of a place where Someone has lost all sense of entitlement because they've been confronted by the grace of God. That's where these fruits come out of. Often the reason we find it extremely difficult to lay down our lives for others and consider others as more significant than ourselves is because we have not yet come to the point or we've forgotten the reality that the Son of God died for us in our place when we did not deserve it. The simple reality of that. We have forgotten that. We have chosen to overlook that. And it leads to entitlement. It leads to a life of self-pleasure, self-seeking. Decisions made purely based on your own terms without any thought for anyone else. And this is why John, the apostle, says in his first letter, if someone sees a brother or sister in need and does not help them, how can the love of God be in that person? He says, like, he's not just posing a question like, oh, it may or may not be in there. He's saying, no, 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 no. The love of God can't be in that person. It's, it's impossible because the love of God is selfless. And if that same love is in you, it will be selfless. It will overflow in generosity and giving in the fruits of the Spirit that we see here. So the mark of a right understanding of the gospel in our community will be harmony within our community, the constant laying down of preferences for the good of others. It's an extremely difficult thing, but it is good for the soul to be trained in that, to be freed from yourself. Harmony in the community, that's the fourth mark. The final mark is Christ-flavored fruit. The, the fruits of the Spirit are obviously a very popular idea uh, in Christianity. They're talked about a lot. 
uh, and I want to highlight a particular aspect that maybe you have heard this before. I've never really heard this um, preached before, but uh, it's something that I believe is extremely important in us understanding uh, the fruits of the Spirit that is often overlooked. And that is that the fruits that we see here, the fruits of the Spirit, are primarily found in and directed toward Christ before they are directed toward other people. They are fruits that are directed toward other people. But the only way that they are actually fruits of the Spirit is if those fruits are first and foremost directed toward Christ. See, there is plenty of atheists out there who demonstrate these fruits. I can think of my parents. Most of you have met my parents. They are very lovely people, very compassionate. They have given as much as when I told them I was leaving my federal government job to take up Bible college, that was like their worst nightmare. Classic boomers, lovely people. All they want is a good life for their child. And it was like I was basically throwing it away and they just could not understand that. And even as much as in their hearts, they might loathe the idea of, their son resigning from a good job to then take up a $50,000 hex debt and become a pastor, they have given more money to this church and to my study than most other Christians. In fact, a lot more. And they have showed compassion and love toward other people. My, my mom is just like the kind of woman who would stop in the middle of the road to, to help someone who's broken down or something else or a cat who seems lost. She's a very loving person. As much as I love them, their fruit is not a fruit of the Spirit. That's, that's another thing not to get twisted. Um, plenty of atheists can be very good people in the eyes of the world. Most of my friends, I think, are very generous and compassionate. And the problem is when Christians think that they have a monopoly on joy and compassion purely because they might show some compassion towards someone again who they might already like. And that's not a fruit of the Spirit. The mark of the Christian, this is where the difference is, the mark of the Christian is that there is first and foremost a love for Jesus a joy in the Lord, a peace in Christ that surpasses all understanding. That's where the fruits are directed to, and that's where they then find the grounds for overflowing to others when they are directed toward Christ. The fruits of the Spirit are a work of the Spirit, right? And what is one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about? Jesus, when he is teaching on the Holy Spirit, says, the Holy Spirit will come and he will guide us into all truth. He will guide you into all truth and he will glorify me. The Spirit will glorify me. So what should these, how should these fruits actually glorify the Lord? When they are first and foremost directed toward him. It glorifies the Lord to have a people who are so satisfied in him. So in love with him. Yes, of course, it glorifies the Lord to show that we love one another. That's essential to the community. But it must come out of an overflow of these fruits being first and foremost directed toward the Lord. Augustine has a very famous quote who says, He loves God too little, who loves anything together with God. 
which he loves not for God's sake. He loves God too little. Him who loves anything together with God, which he does not love for God's sake. So what he's saying is that ultimately all of our affections, all of our devotion must be directed toward God or we simply love him too little. And he gives this example just as I finish of um, a groom who gives his future bride a ring. And he says, imagine if that bride then took the ring and said, what a beautiful ring. That's enough for me now. I don't need to see the groom anymore. I've got this wonderful gift. It would be crazy. The gift of the ring is meant to point her back to the groom, back to the giver of the gift. The love should be directed toward him. And likewise, we can miss the point of the fruits here if they are not primarily directed toward the Lord. That's where they must be directed. That's the mark of understanding the gospel, that you are thrust into this life of wanting to know Jesus Christ. The fruit must be Christ-flavored fruit if it is to be the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the five marks. An eager longing for the hope of righteousness, a genuine faith displayed in loving service, obedience to the truth, selfless harmony, and Christ-flavored fruit. And that is hopefully something that we can be praying about together as a community.